Well, thanks for stopping by. Today's show is about ransomware. It's about stopping an attacker before you get to the question, do we have backups? Welcome to Threat Actions This Week, the show where we look at the latest threats, tech, and actions your organization can take. Today's top security talent share their insights with you. I am joined this week by a veritable army of experts. I've got three joining me on the line and maybe a fourth. We'll see what happens along the way. We're going to break apart the ransomware kill chain. First, Stuart Cothray, who I think you're going to be unlocking a super guest badge this week for being such a friend to the show. You've been on a number of times. Stuart, welcome. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this week. And Stuart is the Director of Security at Thomson Reuters, and he joins us out of the Toronto area. Alan Liska, you're unlocking a badge too today, aren't you? If Stuart gets a Friends of the Show badge, so do you. I believe if this were SNL, I would be entitled to a jacket. So uh, I'll be expecting my jacket in the mail. He's the senior analyst, recorded future co-author of Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion. He joins us out of the Washington, D.C. area. Tim Gallo, who is the other co-author of Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion. He is also the Global Services Intelligence Engineer over at FireEye, and it joins us out of the Eugene, Oregon area. How are you doing today, Tim? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. So first, what we do is we head over to the Threat Radar and find out what's in the center of our guest screen this week. Alan, what vulnerabilities or threats are you concerned about today other than it being Patch Tuesday? What's uh, in the center of your screen? There are a couple of big ones this week. Obviously, on Thursday, uh, Adobe released some serious Flash exploits. Hopefully, you're not running Flash at all, but if you are still running Flash, hopefully you've patched. And then Microsoft released two critical exploits or two critical vulnerabilities today. One in the Windows DNS subsystem, which will allow anybody who sends a maliciously crafted DNS packet to potentially gain remote access to your machine. And then another one in the Microsoft Edge scripting engine, which, again, could allow remote access to your machines. Tim, what do you got on your radar screen this week? So lately, I've actually been following up on some new trends in social engineering and how some of the APT groups tend to be leveraging multiple relationships and false personas across their targeting sectors, really looking at how they're trying to do things like BEC or business email compromises more effectively using social engineering, looking at how they're trying to get around the technologies we're putting in place. There seems to be some new correlation that we've been able to find. Stuart, what's in the middle of your radar screen this week? This week, I've been spending a lot of time in the DevSecOps kind of space, so working with our developers to automate the scanning process right into their agile environment so that they're uh, regularly scanning their code when they make commits and trying to eliminate the vulnerabilities before they get uh, compiled and released. We're doing static during the dev process and then dynamic at the tail end of it. We're also integrating some manual pen testing into the process as well to make sure that we're not missing anything. Uh, but on the static side, we're catching a lot of the low-hanging fruit. So like the basic you know, buffer overruns, the credential mismanagement, cross-site scripting, things like that. A lot of that where it's just lazy cut-and-paste code work that uh, someone's not paying attention. We're getting a lot of those, which is really reducing the vulnerabilities that we have to deal with in QA and production. And that's been a huge advantage to us because the remediation we have to do for my 
dynamic scans are, are going down quite a bit because we're catching them early on in the dev process. So if there is a silver lining to ransomware, and you don't know where I'm going to go with this, do you? It's that it has elevated cybersecurity awareness. And that's among the average person and up to the executive suite. It's kind of like, you know, remember back to the Friday the 13th virus? And, you know, Melissa and I love you. Actually, do you guys remember Friday the 13th? You old enough? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know how old that was? So I had to look it up. I, and, I, and I was actually kind of depressed when I did. It's from 1989. Tone Loke and Millie Vanilli were both topping the charts when, when that virus was out. So WannaCry, of course, did that from a ransomware standpoint. But ransomware itself also dates back to, Tim, 1989. And I believe it was a snail mail campaign. That was an interesting sort of piece of malicious code, how it worked historically. It is ostensibly the first ransomware. Now, in 2018, it's about AI and machine learning and using advanced analysis to learn about the sensitive files that an organization has or, or to map out the life of an individual to be able to learn on social media more about you, about your family, about your coworkers, and be able to put together a profile on you in an automated fashion. So, Alan, when you're looking at the evolution of ransomware, have you seen attackers using AI? Have you seen them using ML to be able to develop better profiles, to be able to better fish users? How do you see that playing out? The ransomware campaigns that are still successful, let me say this, the cybercrime ransomware campaigns that are still successful, because now in ransomware, we have to distinguish between nation state and cyber criminals, actually have gone back to some old school hacking techniques. So, you know, the one that you still are hearing a lot about in 2018 is SamSam, right? The Locky server, while they're still out there, they dropped off precipitously in terms of the number of successful infections. The SamSam group is still out there, and that's because of the model they take. And SamSam, for those that don't know, they're the ones that hit Atlanta, the Colorado Department of Transportation, all scripts, and a number of medical facilities. And what these guys do is they gain access to an organization and then they spend their time exactly what you said mapping and understanding the organization and then when they deploy their ransomware they deploy it in a way that causes the maximum amount of disruption in other words they get to know their network often better than the network admins know their network and then they deploy it in the way that's going to cause the most heartbreak meaning that the target is much more likely to pay the ransom. So rather than going AI and ML, they've really gone old school and, and spend literally months inside of the target gathering information and learning and understanding the network before launching their attack. And once you understand that network, there's many more things that as an attacker I can do. So in 2018, it's also about a multi-layered attack. It's, you know, would you like some crypto jacking with that? Would you like some data exfil with that? File encryption and traditional ransomware is part of what the attacker is up to, but it's only one component. So if I go and buy a zero day or better yet, I just exploit one of the many vulnerabilities already available within your organization. I install some you know, crypto jacking malware or what have you. And it may take you a few months to discover I'm there after I've used your unused computing power for a while and run up your electric bill. Then maybe I hold you ransom to unlock your files. You may pay me or maybe you can restore your files from backup 
from there, I then say, well, you know, I've kind of mapped out your sensitive data. I have copies of it and I'm going to drop this out on the public internet if you don't pay me again. And then once you maybe pay them or maybe you don't, they launch another attack against you, turning your own systems against you from within, whether it's a basic volumetric attack or layer 7 DDoS attack or what have you. The point being that we really do need to stop the attack early in the kill chain and not let it get to the point where they're able to extort me. When I think about this multi-layer kind of attack, Stuart, are you you seeing this? If you're definitely doing that old school technique, that's one of the things that the I think the AI and the machine learning may not have the advantage of is the freedom of the human mind to say, hmm, let's look over here. And so if they are getting inside, and once they get inside, there's too many opportunities for them to go laterally and look around, and they may find other things. And so, of course, why immediately go to the ransomware lockup and, and go for a demand and get into that negotiating cycle when you could pull off a lot of data that you could sell in the black market? You could do a bunch of other types of attacks and monetize your time spent in there much more. You'll see that in the larger cases. There's still going to be a, a slew of these, I stumbled on a landmine type ransomware because I went to the wrong site. And those aren't the, the attacks. Those people who are getting hit with that are not the ones. But the large corporations, I think you're going to see these multi-pronged attacks because they're spending so much money preparing and doing the reconnaissance. They want to recoup that investment. In our industry, we talk about the inevitability of being breached. We talk about it's not if, it's when. And I got to say, if I hear that one more time in a keynote, what it does, I think, to some degree is almost let us off the hook. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to go through the kill chain, because on the one hand, yes, there's many points across my organization that I need to defend and the attacker only needs to compromise one of them. But they also need to get across all of the different hurdles that are in their way. And so if I put up enough of those hurdles, will they go on to the next organization or try a different attack somewhere else or what have you? Alan, when you hear it's not if, but when, do you cringe at all? It's not an untrue statement. But I feel about it the way I feel about salespeople who say, we help you find the needle in the haystack. That's one of those that I'm going to punch the next person that I hear say that. I guess I shouldn't be so violent on your podcast. Sorry. Um, but it's not an untrue statement, but it's also not very helpful. Yes, there's a pretty good chance that at some point you are going to be successfully breached and you need to prepare for that. That's absolutely very good advice. Saying it doesn't actually help anything. It's not actionable in any way. Oh, I didn't know that I was possibly going to be attacked. Well, thank you for giving me this information. Um, it's not making a security team more effective knowing that, if you will. Yeah, it's a sales strategy. It's, it's pushing the panic button a little bit further, which I don't think is, is entirely helpful for the industry. So let's try and do something helpful for the industry. Let's look at the kill chain. Instead of the Lockheed Martin longer kill chain will use a slightly shorter one, which by the way, you have a very similar one in your book and we can go by what you guys had or what have you. What I've put together is, and this is pretty standard, is reconnaissance and then they infect Right. And then we've got command and control. They're going to expand some lateral movements across and into other machines and then finally extort your organization. So why don't we take those in turn and determine what we're going to do to limit our exposure across those different areas of the kill chain. So, Alan, continuing with you, when we're looking at reconnaissance and first just trying to help 
users protect themselves from that initial point of attack. Phishing emails have gotten a lot better. The advice that we used to give, oh, watch for words that aren't exactly right or sentence structure that's not exactly right. Phishing emails have gotten a lot better. What's more important to me when you're talking about a phishing attack, if I'm in security, is taking the steps necessary to prevent that delivery from being exploited. So, you know, obviously one of the most common ways to attack somebody is to load up an office document with an executable, whether that's Flash, whether it's a PowerShell script or a JScript or whatever. But there are ways that you can protect your organization, things like disabling macros in Microsoft Office, disabling the Windows-based scripting engine, disabling PowerShell. Those type of things will help protect against that type of attack. Because again, remember, these guys aren't necessarily using super special secret zero days for your average phishing email. They're using common techniques that work that often don't even involve exploitation other than the person. Especially for a really sophisticated phishing email, if you aren't going to convince everybody not to click it and open the office document, what you need to do is have compensating controls in place that don't allow those to be executed. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so I know you're going, you're pushing ahead a little bit in the kill chain into the infect. And, and I know it's it's almost impossible to not do that. I, 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 no, I, I do the same thing. It's absolutely fine. So when we start with this reconnaissance and we think about how we educate our users, what would you do at the recon phase? Stuart? I think it was Alan who mentioned it is assume that they're going to click on it and then have those compensating controls in place. So make sure they're operating at least privileged credentials so that they don't have the ability to immediately give the attacker a lot of access and control the environment that way so that if they do click on it, the likelihood of the exploit going beyond that system is lower. Tim, what advice do you have for organizations? Would you use carrots or sticks when, when you're starting to try to train employees? What else would you put in place? Would you just put technology in place and say, look, users are going to do what users do? So I think there's a couple different things that we've got to take into account here. Item number one is from the position of security, I hate being the stick bearer, right? I don't want to be the person who's saying no all the time, who's the bad guy in many of these instances, particularly because that puts you on your back foot when you're attempting to do things for the business already. And the only way we're going to be able to succeed as security people is to have the lines of business representatives on our side and work with them hand in glove. So I think the carrot methodology in most of those cases works really well. So providing things like every time they submit a suspicious email to you, whether it's spam or a legitimate email, I think is great, right? To be able to provide good feedback and a, a pat on the back and say, great job. Thanks for catching that. This is a piece of spam or no, this is a good one. I, I saw why you thought this might be something bad. And uh, here's where we've got validation on it. But that's awesome. Thanks so much, right? Being able to provide that kind of carrot actually, I think, helps engender you to uh, you with the right remainder of the organization and develops a, a strong relationship there. I think the other thing that we've got to take into account is depending upon the threat actor themselves, whether or not they're going to be doing the super sophisticated, highly difficult to detect email campaign or, or URL campaign 
is going to be based upon you know you as an organization and what they why they're targeting you right there's the other side of it where there are still folks that are out there that are just running for the as i like to call it the liquor store mentality right they're going to you know they're just trying to hold up as many liquor stores as possible so they're just going to you know go on a spree whereas depending upon the organization type there is more of the oceans you know oceans eight 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever mentality, where there's a lot more work that is done in advance to understand who my targets are, why I'm targeting them, what targets will work most effectively against them based upon what I know from them from a reconnaissance perspective. And not just having the right the email sent, but crafting the appropriate email because I understand these folks, these individuals, social media profiles, what their LinkedIn profiles look like. I've done reconnaissance on the organization based upon the types of jobs they have posted in their IT and their development organization, right? So then I'm gonna better know what tools they're using. So I can either A, craft based upon my understanding of those toolkits. Every security job that's out there where it's posted that talks about what types of security security products that you should have experience in is essentially telling an attacker what tools you're using so then they can figure out what the bypasses they need to establish are. Those are parts of the reconnaissance portion of the chain that vary depending upon the economics of the situation. What is the criminal organization's goals? Are they on a crime spree or are they planning this long-term targeted attack in order to be able to do major disruption to an organization and extract as much money as possible from a single group? Tim, you're an advocate of carrots. How do you feel about software that allows me to try and trick my users almost into falling for a phishing attack and then measuring that against a baseline and continuing to see if I can refine how well they do? I actually think running through some of those exercises is important because it lets you understand where, you, again, it's, it's like doing a vulnerability scan of the technology in so much as you're ostensibly vulnerability scanning the people. But ostensibly, we take the output of said scan and better understand who are our most vulnerable targets and why are they vulnerable? What is it that made it so that they would click on this email and provide them with education? Don't belittle or demean them, but instead provide them with tools that make them more effective at understanding the types of attacks they're going to see based upon their roles. I treat that almost as if you're vuln scanning the humans. You run the internal phishing campaign. The people who get clicked on it get invited to a lunch and learn where it's a catered lunch. They come, they have lunch, it's paid for by the company, and the content gives them the tools and the education that they understand why not to click on those items. We don't push the fact that you're here because you clicked on this, but if you didn't click on it, you don't get the invite to the lunch and learn. It's an interesting way to offer something in return for coming in. We're going to educate you a little bit more. And so my focus should be around email and web, which is essentially where 90% of breaches originate from. So we've talked about email. Alan alluded to, to the web piece as well in terms of some of the things that I might want to start to think about there. And when we look at malvertising or what have you, are there certain things I can do to protect myself there? Anything that's coming in via email with URLs on it, obviously you can do like URL rewrites and run those off to the sandboxes in some places. Other things that you can leverage here like CSP, where you can actually see what kind of content is actually contained in the web pages that are being presented to your end users through some enforcement at a proxy. And that way you're actually adding ostensibly a, an application layer firewall between your end users and the services themselves. So that kind of browser isolation or, or isolation at the device layer is pretty helpful as well. So when I'm looking at the next phase, which is Infect, so we've looked at reconnaissance, we've started into Infect, and I think about all the different things that I can do, all the different protections I can put in place. 
patching, email gateway, uh, disable macros, as Alan was talking about as well. I can block active content in the browser. Maybe I can invest in endpoint security solutions. Out of those things I just listed or others, what would you potentially put at the top of the list or would you say it depends on the organization? It's a very consultative answer and it's and it depends. I mean, defense in depth is a strategy that we've all heard in our portion of the business for a long time. And I think ultimately it, it comes down to establishing a, a number of controls at various points along the way. So it's scanning inbound email. It's also ensuring that anything that is downloaded to the endpoint devices, it is itself scanned, but also if it's attempting to kick off any non-traditional processes, like opening up a Word document that starts up a PowerShell script, that's something you should be able to knock out too. Same thing goes with like embedded objects in Excel spreadsheets. If you see it kick off a reverse shell, then hey, that's a problem because it shouldn't be doing that. RDP is not the kind of thing that you typically want to have embedded in an Excel document. And oftentimes people will just click the update button when they open an Excel document. And in doing so, they're ultimately allowing for that connection to be made. You're looking at a little bit of everything. You understand the threats that are potentially coming at you organizationally, but you also have implemented technologies that are going to provide you with a number of different control points at the email layer, at the proxy layer, at the endpoint, monitoring the firewalls themselves. I think ultimately we need to really take a look at how we build out a cohesive strategy that takes advantage of all of these different control points and provides your security operations, your threat intelligence team, those teams that are working together to be able to take the alerts and the output of those products and determine, is this something that is happening? Is it actively infecting devices? And how do I quarantine or prevent that infection from spreading? and then ultimately be able to respond to that. So we've looked at the first two stages of the kill chain. We've looked at reconnaissance and infect. Alan, for command and control, is this still an issue with ransomware that it's calling home? It's saying, hi, what do I do now? Or can I get the traffic as it's coming back out of my network? Yeah, absolutely. As bad as WannaCry was last year, one of the things that prevented it from being even worse was a researcher who found their kill switch and registered that domain that prevented it from being, I'm sorry, that was not pet yet. I confused the two. So command and control is still a very important part of ransomware campaigns. A lot of ransomware is two stage where the uh, infection happens. So exploitation happens. The loader is loaded up onto the victim machine and then it calls out to a command and control host to get a key or to get the second stage or other parts of the ransomware. So most ransomware isn't completely self-contained. At some point, it has to make a call out. So knowing what that infrastructure looks like, being able to block that, whether by domain or IP address or traffic type, however it is that you're going to block that can be really important. Now, with in the world, you know, going back to your comment about AI and automation, in the world of domain-generated algorithms, it's hard to block by domain because there's so many that they can cycle through. But if you can build Yara signatures or you can build Snort signatures that detect what those traffic patterns look like and block that traffic, you can oftentimes save ransomware from being able to successfully deploy. Well, thanks for that. And we're going to bring Birat Narala into the conversation in just a minute. But uh, just before I do that, Stuart, what are some of the things that you think about to limit that attacker from being able to expand uh, their reach within the organization. I'm going to go back to 
privileged account management, like making sure that people are running, uh, systems are running with the appropriate level of privileges. If you give root privileges or admin privileges to an underlying service and that attacker gets, gets a hold of those, they start propagating around. Don't use shared credentials. If all of your desk side support folks use the same admin account to get into the box to do desk side support, once that credential is compromised, they can get on any machine or in, in the organization. That's got to be a, a heavy way to prevent it because even if they have channels to move laterally, if they don't have the credentials to authenticate, it's going to be very difficult for them to uh, move from their beachhead into other locations. Well, thanks, Stuart. And Birat, glad you were able to uh, to join into the conversation today. Yep. No yeah, thanks very much. And so Birat is the manager of cybersecurity at Capital One uh, out of the Washington, D.C. area. Now we're at the final stage of the kill chain. So we've gone through the first Four. So we've looked at reconnaissance. Uh, we've given some advice there. We've looked at infects and spent a fair bit of time there. Uh, Alan says that command and control absolutely still relevant today. Uh, Stuart talks a little bit about what are some of the things that I want to think about to limit an attacker's ability to expand in my organization. We want to think about least privileges. We want to think about good network segmentation. So across those areas, Barat, was there anything else that you might want to add or that organizations should think about before we get into this final stage, which is extort and whether or not we're going to pay them and what we're going to do. So just before we get there, any, any areas that, uh, you've got advice for organizations to think about. You guys had like awesome, awesome points, some that I may not have thought about in the past, but so going back on the on the email security side, not to annoy the u- users, but you could probably have SPF checks, DKIM, DMARC checks and stuff like that. And on the uh, command and control side, someone mentioned the net, network segregation. You could also have more controls uh, on the network to black hole if you see some command and control type of uh, activities. And the other thing that you know, I think about is application whitelisting only allows certain applications like signed applications who run on your machine, do not allow users to download whatever they want. That probably goes back to like not giving enough access to users, only give them the right access that allows them to do the work and everything else needs approval and stuff. So. Some great advice. And when we think about extorts, what are some of the things that I want to think about? And what are the things that I want to do to limit the attacker's ability at this final stage to extort money out of it. The big thing is knowing your backups, testing your backups ahead of time, knowing how long it's going to take you to restore and ensuring that your backups are network attached because the ransomware developers know to look for network attached backups and they encrypt those as well. There was an article that just came out yesterday about Atlanta. Atlanta's now spent, in order to not pay the $51,000 ransom, they've now spent close to $10 million trying to recover. And some of the things they haven't been able to recover. So they've lost apparently months worth of police dash, uh, dashboard cam footage and some other records that are completely unrecoverable. I think as security people, we all agree, you should never pay the ransom But if you haven't done the legwork, if you haven't done the preparation, if you aren't testing your backups on a regular basis, if you don't know how quickly you can recover, sometimes paying the ransom makes more sense. While, again, I understand that the city of Atlanta's stance on not paying the ransom, then not paying the ransom has cost their taxpayers an extra $10 million. Now, that being said, if at any point you think that there may be a chance you're going to pay the ransom, when you get hit by ransomware is not the time to figure 
figure out how to buy Bitcoin, if that is a possibility, if it's plan F or plan Z32, whatever, you should have a wallet and know who controls that wallet. And please don't store your wallet on one of your desktops that you know could potentially be infected by ransomware and have that ahead of time rather than scrambling and taking an extra week to figure out how to buy Bitcoin and then be able to pay the ransom. That takes us into incident response. And Burat has this great four phases that organizations go through. In particular, there's one organization where files had been encrypted on the network drive and uh, the five phases, Burat, that you had were panic, argument, then plan, and finally control. So uh, how do we avoid the panic <laughs> and what, what goes into the plan, Burat? You know, you need to come up with the plan. Then you need to train people so that they can follow the plan. You need tabletop exercises. You need to go through drills and go multiple times and see what you like, what things failed. Just like, you know, you guys mentioned that you need to know the process of buying Bitcoins if, you, if that's your plan, right? So that should be a part of your drill. Like someone goes out and says, hey, I'm about to buy this or you maybe you may just want to buy it just to see how it works. Perfect. And Stuart, what are you adding into your incident response plan? The biggest thing I find that's usually missing in incident response plans is the communication plan. Who's going to be on point for communication? Who's going to handle external media requests or uh, partners, business partners, customers, things like that? How are you going to handle questions related to that? Who's communicating to your senior management uh, so that they've got the right messages that they need to deal with? And are you regularly reporting back the status of where they're at? Because eventually these things do go public. And you want to have a good control of that message. If you have control of the message early, you manage it throughout the process as opposed to being in a panic situation where somebody speaks out of turn and says something that you wish wasn't said to the public. Well, we've come a long way in a short period of time. We've looked at the threat radar and found out what's at the center of our guest screen this week. We've taken you through the ransomware kill chain. Now, Tim, how can individuals reach you if they want to follow up and what you have on the go coming up that you want to announce? Find me on Twitter at Tim J. Gallo. I believe my next speaking engagement that I've got scheduled is actually with Alan at Hacker Halted in Atlanta. Perfect. And Stuart, same set of questions. Easiest way to get a hold of me is Twitter at Stuart Cothray or via LinkedIn. Alan, how can people reach you? Follow me on Twitter at UUAllen and Tim and I will also be participating, well, organizing the second edition of B-Sides Bordeaux in France this fall. So uh, start buying your tickets now. Your plane tickets, the tickets for B-Sides Bordeaux haven't gone on sale yet. So Wow, that is so cool that you guys are setting that up. And Birat, Nurala, how can people reach you? Probably Twitter or LinkedIn. Twitter would be at Birat Nurala. Well, there you have it. Threat actions this week for June the 12th, 2018. I'm David Senf. See you again next week. Well, when the old stuff keeps working, why change? How am I going to be protected against the super secret stuff that the APTs are doing? They don't want to give that up because it's $100,000 to develop the next one or buy the next one. So they're going to use the low-end stuff that you haven't bothered patching yet first. It's all a matter of economics. Now, if only they can find a way to capitalize that or amateurize that on their taxes, I think they're going to get everything. <laughs>